Turn with me to John chapter 6. If you're visiting, we're in the study of the book of John. Uh, as I mentioned next week, about every few weeks I've had a topical, so I'll have another one next week, and back in it, we'll finish John 6 the week after next. But we'll get pretty far, far today, and we'll pick it up with where we left off the week before 4th of July or Independence Day. John chapter 6, starting verse 41, you'll recall we finished through verse 40 the week before last. Verse 41, chapter 6, but if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, we can put one in your hand. Our ushers are glad to, and even can hand it to you marked with the 6th chapter if that helps. I see that hand, so uh, John chapter 6, starting verse 41, then the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it uh, then that he says, I have come from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that because of your coming, we can have everlasting life right now. But Lord, we pray this morning as we open your word that you would speak to each heart. If there's someone here that doesn't have that everlasting life, someone's still doubting, today will be the day that they come to know you. Those of us that know you, Lord, our faith will grow deeper in you, walking more in you, abiding more in you. We ask Lord, that you remove every distraction. Lord, you'd remove me from the equation. And Lord, I too would be taught by you this morning, each and every one of us hearing from the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Everything that the crowds and the people had seen or experienced with Jesus on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, remember the feeding of the 5,000? Everything they'd seen is that Jesus was unlike anyone they had ever seen or heard. In fact, like anyone the world had ever seen, he's proclaimed to them that he's come down from heaven at the direction of the Father to do the will of the Father. In fact, I think you'd all agree his entire mission was to fulfill the will of the Father and to bring everlasting life to the souls of men and women. And Jesus has performed jaw-dropping miracles. I think every miracle is jaw-dropping, right? Because I've never seen one. Not just one or two miracles, but many miracles that validate him as not being of this world. He's miraculously healed people in ways that should speak to any skeptic. He's not just healed a sprained ankle or two. I could give you some Epsom salt and some ice packs. No, he's healed people that have been disabled for decades. Those dying of diseases those that were without hope. He didn't feed just a few people, but thousands of people. Much like he created the universe, remember, out of nothing, just spoke it into existence. He took bread and just multiplied it out of nothing. He created additional food on the spot. 
Yet, as we saw in the previous portion of text, many there in Capernaum still demanded additional evidence. More signs. Perhaps 40 years of manna like Moses gave. Remember, they pointed to Moses and his ministry. Though, as Jesus pointed out in rebuking their thinking, the manna was his father's doing, not Moses'. Moses couldn't create manna. You can't create manna. I can't create manna. Moses was a man like us. But many remain in this sort of stalemate in their mind. You ever been a stalemate in your mind like you can't think, should I do this or this? Should I believe this or this? Who's telling the truth? That's like watching the news these days. <laughs> Is anyone telling the truth? You know, that's what you start to wonder. What Jesus has done is amazing. They would agree with that. All right, all right, his miracles are amazing. This is the people there. But they're just not sure he's really who he says he is. Is he really God's son? And they're not sure they want to put their full trust in him. As many people you meet are not sure they want to put their full trust in Jesus yet either. Now because we now have the whole Bible, we have the canon, the 66 books, we know for sure what God has said about us, and it ain't good, right? Right, right? To us and about us, all of us as human beings. So we can kind of we can understand their impasse because we're flesh too. We can understand it; doesn't mean it's acceptable. But we can't stay there because the sands of our life are always going through the hourglass. You you don't get forever to make the decision: is Jesus true or not? You get X amount of time to make that call. Our very souls hang in the balance. But we can see the reasons that people are balking at full surrender to Jesus. So the Bible explains it. Ever since sin entered the world, we're born in sin. You can jot these down. Psalm 51.5. Our souls are by nature always wandering away from God. We're not born wandering to God. We're born wandering from God. Isaiah 53.6. And in fact, unless there's a change which we'll be looking at, we tend to influence other people away from God by nature. That's why everyone that is out there committing sin and trying to, and they're deceived, they want your kids deceived too. They're not happy with just themselves that way. They want it to proliferate. We tend to influence others to stay away from God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We turn everyone else to their own way. Misery does love company. I'm lost. I want you lost too, right? I used to remember my unsaved friends living in Miami, and boy, we, we really helped each other sin more. You know? We were really good at that. We're all born blind, not physically. Some of you may be. I don't know everyone here is conditioned, but we're all born spiritually blind. And God is spirit, and the gospel is of the spirit. So the Spirit of God speaks to our spirit and awakens our spirit. Ephesians 4.18, we were born deceived, Titus 3.3. I don't have time to put all these on the screen, I'm just, you can jot them down. Did you know we were all born deceived? Titus 3.3 tells us that. We, were all, we, had to be, we have to become undeceived. And because of these facts of our flesh, that's what I call them, that, that, that is our sin nature, the sin nature of our souls, we by nature either reject the truth of God or we resist against it. I told the first service, I said, like when you're a teenager or maybe you're a younger kid and your parents said, you don't clean your room, no dessert. 
and we'd still fight it to the last possible second, right? It's that resistant nature. Why is it there? It's our sin nature. So it's, and then by the way, Romans one twenty five states that case that we're naturally resisting, Romans one twenty five. So it's supernatural that we would ever receive and believe. It's supernatural that we would receive and believe. And this is where Jesus, the light of the world, and the gospel comes in. He breaks through and breaks down our darkness and our deception. I have two verses up on the screen. The first one, John 12, 46. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. We naturally are born abiding in darkness. That's our domain. That's our home. That's our apartment. We live in darkness by birth. But Jesus wants to pull us out of that. As a matter of fact, John laid this foundation, this foundational understanding at the outset of the book in John 1, 5. He said, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And even still, sometimes when you give the gospel and someone says, I don't know, it didn't make any sense. They're not comprehending the light. If you're stuck in a cavern or a cave, it's in total darkness. Uh, my wife, several years ago, with the teens, got to go spelunking, and she promises to never do it again. <laughs> it was a life-altering experience for the worse. And, uh, and she told me about it, and I will not be going. after. Like, her witness bore witness to darkness. And uh, if you have a map that has the whole cave laid out, and you know how to get it out, but you're in total darkness, it doesn't matter if you have a map. You can't see the map. But if light appears, if you remember, oh yeah, in the backpack there's one tiny little lighter, then you can see the map. Then you can follow your way out to safety. And that's what Jesus does. He sheds light in our spiritual darkness. We're in this dark cave and he shines light and he shows us the way out. He is the way out. But there's still a choice. You still have to either believe in him and follow him not just to safety, but all the way to eternity. Isn't that great? That he, he will take us out. If you're taking notes, you see the title again this morning. New Belief or Continued Darkness. And we want to draw your attention back to verse 41 as we look at this first point, which I've titled Complaining and Conflicted. This is point one. There'll be three if you're taking notes. Then the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I've come down from heaven? One of the destructive hallmarks of the ancient Israelites when they wandered in the desert, I don't know if you noticed when you've read uh, the, the Torah, the first five books, and they were under the leadership of Moses. Did you notice they complained a lot? They were known, they were expert complainers. They complained a lot. They complained about, Mo they, they complained about God first. Moses, food, water, and location. Is there anything left? Where you live, what you eat, what you drink, and who's in charge of you. But I would guess that most often they didn't know they were complaining or even think they were complaining. Many thought, no, I'm just being logical. Just pointing out to Moses the facts. Just pointing out what didn't add up, what doesn't make sense. I'm not complaining, I'm being logical, I'm making an assessment of the predicament here. Sometimes I joke with my father-in-law, he's 
was former executive, a very smart guy, and I'll, he'll say something. I said, you know, it's true. A pessimist is an optimist with experience. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just, every now and then I'll, I'll reiterate that. He actually likes that statement when I say it, but I'm like, no, no, it's not. We are not to be every little thing, you know? And so they would be complaining they thought they were helping God. They were helping Moses to see things from a better perspective. And that's the thing about complaining. We're usually not aware we're complaining. Just like gossip. It's kind of, kind of flow, and they're like, oh, ooh, the Holy Spirit will speak to you, or someone else will speak to you. Sometime in my house, if I'm complaining, and I don't think I'm complaining, my wife says, no, you are complaining. <laughs> no, 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 I'm actually just examining this. <laughs> no, you're complaining about it. No, I'm just I'm critiquing it. I put my legal hat on or something. Told me I should have been an attorney. But anyway, um, we were listening to Dr. Sam on the way down to, um, uh, on Tuesday, we were down to Norfolk to see Jason here's uh, 20 years in the Navy uh, retirement, which was awesome. On the, on, the, on the destroyer, yeah. Give him a hand. You raise your hand, Jay. Now that they all clap, that's Jason back there. He was in all dressed whites. It was awesome. And you know, the whole ceremony was, the USS Cole was like two ships down. I don't have time for all that, but it was good. <laughs> and um, we were listening to Dr. Sam, and Sam's a good friend of mine uh, and a mentor. And Sam was talking about people not feeling like they're sinning. And he says, you know, as Sam's in his Brooklyn accent, he goes, I don't know what you think sinning feels like, but... Sin is anything that's opposed to the Word of God, opposed to the Spirit of God, opposed to the presence of God. And so here it was Jesus, and in the wilderness it was God literally in their presence, and they're opposing or complaining. They complain in the wilderness against God, and here they're complaining against Jesus. And it doesn't matter if they feel like they're complaining, they are complaining. It doesn't feel like they're sinning, they are sinning. So if Jesus says, this is who I am, and he is the great I am, and their response is, well, that doesn't make any sense to us. We need more evidence. Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And then we'll believe. We're complaining, and we're doubting, and we're actually resisting, which is the sin of unbelief. And the sin of unbelief will land a person in the lake of fire, eventually. The sin of unbelief is the last straw. Thomas Fuller lived in the 1600s. He says, we're born crying. This is what I'll cheer you all up. We're born crying, we live complaining, and die disappointed. <laughs> now, he was a Christian. He wrote that as that would be our predicament apart from Christ. That was not how he lived. He says, as I observe the world... In our natural state, we are born crying, the doctor slaps us. We <laughs> complain until the day we die, and then when we get older and everything's breaking apart, we're even more disappointed that our complaints never even worked out. Unless Jesus. Amen? Unless Jesus. He can change that whole, not the baby crying, that, all of us get that one, but the, the next two can be changed by the Lord. Remember the humbled thief on the cross? There were two thieves on either side of Jesus. They both started out complaining. 
Matthew 27 tells us, you, you might think that, that one was, had the right idea and the other. No, they both started out reviling, complaining, and didn't think it was fair. But the one came to his senses. Even though Jesus had not done any of the miraculous miracles for that thief, Jesus is weak and dying. And he starts to believe anyway that this, this really is the Son of God. And he, in the middle of all that, in his conditions far more dire than these people that are at Capernaum with Jesus, in the middle of all that, he stops complaining and starts believing. That's good for us, isn't it? Yeah. If we would stop complaining and start believing, his day changed, his eternity changed, because Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. What kind of paradise does God want to put you in, in your life right now that you're complaining and my complaining is holding us back when he's telling us to believe? He simply believed the testimony of Jesus and he appealed to the mercy of Jesus. And as we've looked at previously, the parallels of the wilderness tribes of Israel striving with Moses strike a parallel of Jesus and the crowds around him striving with him. Because he would be the second Moses, the one like unto Moses. And Jesus continues to draw this parallel and shed light on the ancient past and the present that he... Jesus said, I'm the greater bread. You, you guys love all the manna stories, and they're true. I did that. My father did that for Moses and for your fathers and your forefathers. But Jesus said, I'm the greater bread. I'm the manna. I'm the complete fulfillment of the manna. The manna was a foreshadow. I'm the fulfillment of it. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about types and shadows. The manna was a type and shadow. It was real then, but it was also always pointing to the greater bread that would come down from heaven. And just as the manna saved those in the wilderness from starvation and death, Jesus saves us from eternal condemnation, eternal death, the judgment of sin, hell, and the lake of fire. The manna that came down, it wasn't from Moses, it was from God, just as Jesus came down from who? God. The manna came from God, Jesus comes from God. You see the parallels? Jesus is, if, you had a white, if I had a whiteboard, he's actually doing a column comparison this was Moses' ministry, this is my ministry. This was manna, this is me. You need the new, improved version, the eternal version. Jesus is saying, he's pointing himself, he said, this, I'm the bread of heaven. I'm the one come down. That manna, your forefathers, and we'll read it in a second, they ate it and still died. He's like, if you eat of me, you won't die. Just like he told the woman of the well about the living water. They've seen Jesus feed thousands. They've seen him heal thousands, yet he's saying he's come down from his father, results in an eye roll. Oh, we know your parents. <laughs> that's, what the I, that's my way of saying it, but that's what we get. We know the town you're from. We know your parents. Therefore, we know you didn't come down from heaven. Now, the fact that you fed us all from a couple fish and loaves, that was pretty cool, but we still aren't convinced. Complaining about their perspective, they are complaining what they want from Jesus in the way of evidence. They're conflicted. How can he be marrying Joseph's son and be God's son? And by the way, Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. And that's really hard for me. That is not a mathematical thing that adds up, but it is true. Amen? He's all man and all God. Let's take a look at the next point. Point number two, called and convinced. 
Jesus moves into a truth here that uh, is very liberating for us, and very helpful for us sharing our faith, but also understand how we came to faith. He goes on, he says, uh, do not mur- uh, Jesus answered therefore and said, do not murmur among yourselves, no one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus pointed all the way to the end of the age there. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He who has seen the Father, most assuredly I say, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So we see their response to their perceived dilemma, and they still are not convinced that no, no, you're, you're marrying Joseph's son. How in the world can you be sent down from heaven? And he doesn't say to them, you know, you're right. You guys make a good point. By the way, Jesus, I don't think I know anywhere in the Bible where Jesus says, you made a great point, when it's counter to his point. You won't find that, right? So he doesn't say, hey, I totally understand. I, I should have done more to, to convince you. I should have done this sign that you would have believed. I should have done, he doesn't say anything. No worries, you guys think about it some more. He doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't placate their situation. He tells them not to murmur. By the way, that word is used in the Old Testament a lot there in the wilderness. And it's the same word as you see in verse 41 where it says complain. Complain and murmur, same words. The Greek word gangudzu, it's used uh, in both those verses. It means to mutter. You ever heard someone muttering under their breath? Right here. Grumble. Speak in a low tone. You ever tell your kids to do something and you know you heard something? <laughs> but they say you didn't hear anything. Have you ever heard someone say something? You, you could have sworn you heard your name and it was not good. Was that my name? No, I wasn't talking about you. Murmuring, complaining, grumbling. And he goes on to say that the Father has sent him, he sent the Son, the Messiah, And that the Father that sent him is also the one that draws people. That just as the Father sent the Son down, he draws people to himself. And that's the only way you can come to Christ, is God to draw. He said, no one can come to me. No one unless the Father draws him unto me. Jesus said the same thing to the disciples in John 15, 16. He said, you did not choose me. I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Aren't you great? Aren't you glad that God can help us bear fruit? We can't bear fruit unless God helps us bear fruit. There's nothing fruit bearing in our nature. We're dark and deceived by nature. He changes the paradigm by putting his spirit in us. Then we can become fruit bearing. But it's liberating and witnessing, knowing that when you share your faith with someone, you don't have to, you don't have to convince them to get saved, convince them that the New Testament's true, convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. You say, Father, you have to draw them. And you can be, I've, I've put forth incredibly good arguments with people and gotten nowhere, and I've tripped all over myself and seen people get saved. That's when I know it's all about the Lord, right? You can get it all wrong, and God's like, get out of the way. Come, you're coming to me. Our job is simply to present the gospel. God the Father is the one that draws a heart brings the conviction of the Spirit. We don't do that. We can't do that. We can't bring conviction to people. We can't convince them. I told the first there, we can't convince people about this about Republicans and this about Democrats. We can't convince them of that. Why would you possibly think you convince their soul 
about anything. God does that. I know he did that with me. You guys know my testimony. You've heard it more times than you probably want to. But uh, the day he compelled uh, me to go to church in June of 1995, I didn't even, you know, we had closed down the bar at 2 in the morning and there in Fort Lauderdale, and I, I didn't even want to go. Uh, didn't feel like getting out of bed. My head didn't feel right. My wife did, definitely didn't want to get out of bed. We'd married a year. And yet, I got out of bed anyway and lifted and threw her onto the floor because God was drawing me. Looking back, I mean, I was like on some conveyor belt all the way there to the altar. But here's the tension again between election and the foreknowledge of God and is there free will and is the choice given to us by God? Yes to all of that. Election, free foreknowledge. I still had to choose to say yes by the time I got there and that invitation was given and my heart was pounding almost out of my chest and I have, my face is breaking out with sweat and I don't want to go forward but I do want to go forward but I don't but I do but I don't but I do and I did, right? Because at some point I said, Lord, I'm giving my life to you. That, that's that belief that we exercise that free will gift that he gave us. But, but the Lord definitely drew us like we were on a pulley right into the presence of God. Jesus says once the Father has drawn a person, drawn a soul to the Son, once they have been given the promise of the resurrection, and Jesus mentioned here, I will raise you up at the last day, uh, understand that our resurrection is in Jesus. Amen? He's the first fruits of the resurrection. Our resurrection is in Him. We'll be resurrected because He is resurrected. And so our resurrection is in Him, but uh, once a person has been born again, John chapter 3, uh, they and only then can a person be taught by God. You have to be born by God to be taught by God. In other words, I don't go teach my neighbor's kids, I teach my kids. But it, and our kids were born to us, therefore I teach them. And once you're born of the Spirit, you're born to the Father, He's, your, he's now your teacher, your counselor, your parent, your everything, your commander, all of those things. But uh, Jesus says, no one can come to the Father unless he's drawn, uh, uh, I'm sorry, come to me unless the Father's drawn him. And as is written, verse 45, all they, and they shall all be taught by God. All be taught by God. Aren't you glad if you know the Lord God teaches you? Personally. He's not God He's God my Father. He is God. But I mean He's God my personal Father. Taught by God. When you're drawn by God and convinced by the Spirit of God and then surrender to Christ then God will teach you. Um, the reason why you can't convince someone that's unsaved of things that are in the Bible is they're not taught by God right now. They are their own teacher. And as a matter of fact this is where you get cults and false religions they're not taught by God. That's why they create false things. You're like, where did the... Where? Remember like the uh, Jim Jones thing? and they, they actually had a real King James Bible and all that stuff. And you're like, how is he dismantling the Bible like this to people commit suicide? Because he wasn't taught by God. He was his own God. And when you're not taught by God, you teach other people your own philosophies as if it's coming from God, but it's not. Jesus says, many false Christs will arise. And don't follow after them. They're, they're not taught by God. 
So if you hear someone that says they're taught by God, teaching something different than the Bible, run the other direction. Because they're not taught by God. Therefore, they won't teach what God teaches. That uh, initial hearing, though, God brings that point of conviction. He brings us, He draws us, and He brings us to that place of salvation, and He brings us to His Son. That's what Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. To not believe in God is to not believe in Jesus. Like you can't, I believe in God, I just don't believe in His Son. No. He will bring you to the Son. Those taught initially by God, this is wonderful, will be taught forever by God. I'm being taught by God in 2021. I'll be taught by God if I'm still alive in 2031. I'll be taught by God for every eternity. So will you and all of us that are saved, those of you that are watching online and you're born again, you're going to be learning from God for all eternity because there's no end to his teaching. So we'll be sponges forever in that respect. Um, From the day of salvation through this lifetime of sanctification on to the final work of glorification when we live with glorified bodies. Won't that be great? Uh, But Jesus is saying... It is written in the law, and now I'm telling you that those who have been saved have everlasting life. Isn't that great to know? That it's like, I wonder if I have everlasting life. Uh, I'm saved this day. I lose it tomorrow. I'm back saved. I'm lost. I'm back saved. No, if you have been born again. Now, there's lots of people that have never been born again. They had a false conversion. They never really have repented. That's a different story. But if you've been saved... You have everlasting. It's a possession. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're running out of time. So last point, let's take a look at uh, verse, and read with me verses 48. I'll read it aloud, but just follow along uh, the, the last part of this text. And we didn't read this part yet. So pick it up with verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness are dead. And Jesus, and here's the comparison again. My bread, different. The bread your forefathers ate, Satisfied hunger, but couldn't give life. Not eternal life anyway. They're dead. This is the bread which comes, speaking of himself, now you can see his own arms like pointing to himself. This, pointing to himself, is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. Totally different bread. Just like the living water with the woman at the well. Different bread. I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Promise that only Jesus can keep. He will live forever. And the bread that I... Give is my flesh, here's where they start to, they don't like this last sentence. It is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. Where is he going to give his flesh for the life of the world? See that cross? Arms are going to go that way. Their response, verse 52, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves. They've complained, they murmured, now they're quarreling. Saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Why is he calling us to break the law of cannibalism and drink blood and eat flesh, which was forbidden in the law, and the apostles will end up forbidding it as well in the book of Acts? Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, Jesus doubles down. He sees they are looking for a reason not to believe. He goes ahead and goes even deeper in driving this nail through. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, now they're becoming more offended, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. I have tasted of the body and blood of Jesus in the spirit realm, and that's why I'll be raised last day, and that would be you as well. He goes on to say, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Whoever 
He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living Father has sent me and I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogues as he taught in Capernaum. If you take your notes, our last point corrected and confused. Jesus is going to do some correcting here and they are still confused. In fact, they're about to be more confused. As Jesus continues, uh, and by the way, this text, some scholars say is one of the hardest texts to teach and decipher and read and instruct people in in the entire New Testament, in, in fact, the Bible. So I'm doing my best uh, to make sure that we look at it correctly. But um, as Jesus continues, he reminds them rather emphatically, as he said earlier in the same conversation back in verse 35, he said, I am the bread of life. And every time we see the I am statements, I'm going to put this back on the screen. Remember some of the I am statements he says more than once, but he says only the, a specific one seven times. You don't think it's an accident God does this seven times, right? Seven I am statements. Seven is completion. Jesus is the completion. When, when Moses said, who should I say sent me? The I am sent you. Jesus is saying, I am the I am. I am God. But, but these seven statements, every time they come up, we'll pop this back up so you kind of see where they fall throughout the book of John. But the I am statements, you either believe it or reject it. You either say, I believe you're the bread of life, or I still don't believe, I still think you're just Mo, uh, Joseph and Mary's son. And as they're hearing this, they're very troubled by it. Uh, I told the first service that, you know, the people are in some ways, when you reject God, you're looking for an excuse. On the other hand, when you're on the other side of darkness, things don't make sense. If you've never seen an elephant and you describe it to someone, they think, you just made that up. But no, no, it's shaped like this. And you, then you describe a giraffe and they've never seen one, you're just making up weird creatures. You've watched too many movies or something like that. But they could not understand why he's saying, drink my blood and eat my flesh. But it's a metaphor uh, just, as Je- uh, just as the bread was necessary for life, Jesus is necessary for eternal life. And as he continues further in correcting and rebuking their thinking, which is a real show of love, when you correct people in love, Scott did a great job of this Wednesday in Proverbs, it's to care enough that they know the truth. And in this case, Jesus cares enough that they know the terms of accepting and believing Him. There are terms you've got to totally believe. I 50% believe in you, Jesus. Remember, he's saying this is an all-in, all my body, all my blood. It's full immersion. It's like being baptized. We do it on the 25th. We'll, we'll totally dunk people. They'll get completely immersed. Head to toe, all in belief. And we'll look at that more in the final verses of this chapter in the encounter. Uh, but the people, they get even more confused with him saying, you're going to have to eat my body and drink my blood. Jesus does not mince words in expressing that coming to him is a 100% thing. Totally believing. And the imagery that he uses made even less sense to those that are hearing him. And even for those of us that are born again, this is like a pretty weighty text, would you not agree? Pretty weighty for all of us. I've, been, I've read, it, read it for years and it's uh, weighty language 
eat his flesh, drink his blood? What does all this mean? If you, uh, if you came from the Roman Catholic Church, and some of you I know personally were born again and, and have come out of uh, Roman Catholicism, um, you were told that you were literally drinking the blood of Jesus and literally eating his body. That would be really bad news if that were true. It's not true. It would be really bad news because it would be putting Jesus back on the cross again and again and again. The Bible says that Jesus died once. His blood was shed once for the remission of sin. Once. You don't get to cut into him ever again. The world did that once. There's no more of his blood flowing. It's now the spirit flowing, and he brings salvation. The shed blood covered all the sins. But again, that was, uh, if you've ever heard of that doctrine, it's called transubstantiation. Uh, but I agree with Charles Spurgeon's uh, assessment. He said this uh, He said, Our Savior was, however, led to make these remarks. In other words, Spurgeon's saying, Because they refused to believe, Jesus went even more to the place where there was an irritation in them. Sometimes as parents, you know how to do this, right? Hey, you don't like that? How about a little bit more of this? You know, that kind of thing. Um, our Savior was, however, led to make these remarks from the fact that the ignorant Jews, by the way, I don't like how this, this is exactly what he said, but he's, uh, Charles Spurgeon is not anti-Semitic. He's speaking of the actual text. It actually says, then the Jews said, then the Jews said. So he's referring literally to the verse Spurgeon loved Jewish people. The disciples were Jewish people. John the writer here is Jewish. So just make sure we're clear on that. But as he's saying, he's speaking to the text, not actually all Jewish people, just these Jews that were ignorantly rejecting. When he talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, they really thought that he meant that they were to turn cannibals and eat him up. How can we do this? I mean, that's against the law. Moses would be offended. You violated the law. Why would we eat your flesh? Notice that the disciples, they weren't disturbed by this. They had walked with Jesus, and whenever they needed food, he never gave them his arm. <laughs> Remember when they ran out of food just on the other side of the lake? Same chapter. He didn't say, here's my foot. He turned. So the disciples knew he was talking in a metaphor. He was clearly using that language to parallel himself and the bread. Only uh, those that are rejecting were alarmed. By the way, it's a scriptural must for all of you as Bible students, and I hope that you are reading the Word daily and, and getting into the Word, but it's a, it's, a, it's a must for those of us who are going to study the Bible. The context interprets the text. The context interprets the text. A text taken out of context is a pretext, right? So we know that the 2020 rule is always helpful to understand the 20 verses before and the 20 verses after. But beyond that, we actually have lots of other passages, passages of Scripture which shed light on any one passage. Does that make sense? So the Bible always, remember that chart I did a couple of weeks ago, I should repost that. All the references of the Bible verses, Bible verses to other Bible verses, it's in the thousands. I want to say it's like 16,000 times. So the Bible interprets itself, but the context is always evident. Um, uh, but when you see things, understand the context. If, if you ask somebody, or I've had this discussion with people, say, well, the Bible can't be trusted because uh, it's this, it's that. Uh, it, uh, and they'll ask you, well, is the Bible poetry? Is it, is it to be taken literally? Is it historic? Is it prophetic? Is it practical? I say yes to every one of those. 
And sometimes a passage will actually have a metaphor and a literal thing in the same passage. For example, Jesus is literally talking to these people. They're literally in Capernaum. But the metaphor is not a literal thing. He's not literally saying, drink my blood. And an example of this from Scripture, uh, Samson really was attacked by a lion. Real lion, spear comes upon him, he tears the lion apart, which would be really awesome if you could do that, right? Psalm 22, which is a messianic proverb, it was a messianic psalm, David says, they open their mouths at me like a lion. Those are people. They're not lions. They're people that come at you and attack the work of God. They're like a lion, but they're not. That's obviously a metaphor. I had stepped away from studying this, um, and I was just kind of thinking about the whole text, and the Holy Spirit kind of poked my brain about this impasse about the people and Jesus and about drinking the blood and eating the flesh and um, Jesus had already said I am the bread and, it, and the Holy Spirit just spoke to me and said think about that Jesus was not walking around as a loaf of bread he was walking around as a real person but he said I am the bread so therefore as he said I'm the bread the metaphor flows to the next when he says eat my body and blood just like he's not walking around as a loaf of bread, he's walking around as a person, then it continues on that the body and blood eating that is also part of the same understanding. Does that make sense? So they could understand, just like I'm not a loaf of bread, but I am the bread, I'm not asking you to eat my arm, I am asking you to totally believe in me. A hundred percent believe in me. No more doubting, all in. He's pointing to the fact of total submission and total surrender, and it's his flesh but here's the understanding. I'm, Jesus is pointing towards something here. It is his flesh, and it is his blood, and it's only his flesh, and it's only his blood as he's headed to the cross that can save them and us. Amen? Amen. It really will be. That will be literal. The shedding on the cross will be literal. The believing in it is of the Spirit, our heart. We believe, we believe Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and life. And as we close here, are you this morning, those of you online, those of you here, are you convinced? And have you been converted by the grace and by his blood and by his shed body there on the cross? Or are you still conflicted and confused and, and maybe complaining, well, if God would show this or that, then I'd believe in him. He doesn't owe us anymore. Calvary is everything. Everything. We'll all leave here today in one of three states, every one of us. This time it's actually good to be in the middle if you're already saved. But the first one's great too. If somebody here got saved today, they would leave with new belief. If you're already saved here, you should be leaving here with growing belief. And then there's this third option, which so many in the world are the broad road of destruction, you can leave here with continued blindness. That the light got turned on in the, in the cavern, and instead of following the map out, you just chuck the light, and you're back in total darkness. You've had the map in your hand, but it does not help you at all. I'm in that middle section. I've already been saved. Growing belief is where I, that's my life now. Growing belief. Get the roots even deeper. Believe even more. But there was a day in June 1995 that the first one was that new belief. But I also used to live in that third section, continued blindness. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again this morning. Lord, that Jesus... You speak some hard things that are hard to understand sometimes. 
And you have, we have to uh, kind of wrestle with them a little bit. But Lord, when we recognize that, Lord, you are always speaking truth, that when we submit and surrender to your authority, we can understand what you're saying. Not only understand what you're saying, but respond by faith and belief in what you're saying. And Lord, before we take of the elements of the, the communion as we close this service, I just, Lord, if there's anyone here that's not had that new belief, that first drawing of the Father unto the Son, and Lord, only you can draw a person. Lord, I pray that you would save anyone that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior. As your heads are bowed, if there's anyone here at all this morning, this message is to everybody. This is a message to the saints. This is a message to the lost. Jesus is obviously speaking to a lot of lost people at that place in Capernaum. He's actually in the synagogue. It finishes all this in the synagogue. And many of them are lost and not yet converted. They, if they died, they would go to hell. But they had the truth in their hands now. And you have the truth in your hands because it's hit your ears this morning. If you're watching online or here and you say, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to be cleansed. I want to know that I'll be raised up at the last day. I want to have everlasting life. I may not have done a good job of presenting it, but I know the Father's the one that draws you. And if that's you, raise your hand. I want to pray with you. Anyone at all? I see that hand. Any others? Any others? None of us, none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. I said it a couple weeks ago, because I used to live in Miami, and I used to do catering parties when I was in college. None of the people in that Surfside apartment thought when they went home, when they were drinking a glass of wine, looking over the ocean, that that would be their last night. If they knew that, they would not have gone there. They would have gone to a hotel. But none of us know that. Anyone else? For that one that raised their hand, and maybe there's someone online uh, that's raised your hand too, just pray with me. Uh, it's your heart. It's your words. I, I'm just kind of guiding you, but, uh, but if you believe this in your heart and call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Isn't that great to know? You just have to believe. You don't have to die on the cross. He already did that. But you've got to believe in it. You've got to put your faith in it. Just pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love me so much to die for my sins. Lord, I'm sorry for all of my sins. Mostly rejecting you to this point. Please wash me and cleanse me and forgive me of all of my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life for I'm deciding this day July 11th, to follow you, Jesus, forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you pray, yeah, give him a hand. That's <laughs> when I was at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, there was such an anointing there. We had people just like come forward by the droves sometimes. That's what we got to say. I believe if you keep praying, we're going to see it happen. You're going to see a lot of people get saved. You're going to see the baptismal getting a lot of water splashed out as the Spirit comes in. Amen.